You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is Mr. Rob Corder. He is the editor and the co-founder of Watch Pro, and he comes to us from, from London. Rob, welcome. Hi, Owen. Nice, uh, nice to hear from you. So we are at the pre-post-pandemic, as I call it. And in the early pandemic, you and I were, were talking a lot. We were very concerned about what it meant for watch media and the watch industry. And I think we had this desire to be a force of good, right? We knew that there was going to be a lot of people dropping the ball everywhere, but we wanted to do something. Do you think now looking after, you know, more than a year, um, did we make an impact in, in the watch media landscape, given all the things we tried to do during the pandemic? Uh, I, I think we did. I mean, I think that uh, a blog to watch and watch pro were both established as, uh, as digital first platforms. Um, that's how we reach, reach our, audience, our widest part of our audience. So um, as the watch industry had to move entirely online for, for a period of time, including uh, retailers, uh, I think that people were were, uh, were desperate for as much information as, as they could could get. So, you know, WatchPro has a, a more of an angle on what's going on in the business side of things, the sort of financial times of the industry, if, if you will. You have a, a much better uh, understanding and uh, expertise in all things watches. And um, I think that... Certainly when people were forced to work from home or forced to completely live their lives at home and not get out, out at all, they were, you know, they were looking for both important information and, and ways to be entertained online. If watches were their passion or watches were their business, I think we both did uh, a reasonable job, I like to think. I agree. And I think what's important to recognize as well is that you and I both independently had this desire to step up and do something. And I want to step back a little bit and just sort of explain what Watch Pro is. In the watch media landscape, historically at least, there's been the separation between what they call trade media and consumer media. And trade media is speaking to the people who are in the watch industry, the retailers, the brands, the managers, the marketing people, the distributors. It's, it's trying to inform people that work in this industry around the world what's going on. Whereas consumer media, like a blog to watch, is more talking to people that buy, collect uh, watches, are hobbyists, are the consumers. And of course, there's overlap, but these are completely different stories. Uh, watch trade publication would be talking about some type of financial thing, performance, strategies, interviewing managers, whereas a blog to watch would really talk about you know, reviewing products, talking about it from a consumer perspective. But both of us, have a bit of an activist angle, right? That makes us a little bit unique. Plus, we like the like the rant. Do you wish there was more people like us in in sort of the the luxury media space, even taking it out of uh, out of out another step beyond just watches? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think also when you when you define, uh, I think you'd agree. We both have have crossovers or Venn diagram of things. I think I think we're both sure. read, read by. Um, 
people who are passionate about watches, obviously people who are in the industry are by, by, uh, you know, are commercially interested in watches, but they all, uh, you know, they all want to know what you write about as well, which is what are the best watches, how do they work, and what's, what's beautiful and historic, and tell, tell, those, tell those stories. Um, I think I'd agree as well. We, we, we both like to just tell it, tell it as we see it. It's as simple as that. I don't think, you know, I think the, uh, the watch industry needs authoritative voices, whether you're talking about, you know, the, the latest escapement or tourbillon, or whether you're talking about who's doing great business. Um, I think that collectors love reading about the business side of things. Uh, uh, as well as reading about you know how how the watches work and the, and the story behind them, but I think it's I think what's important is that that whatever their information is, whatever type of, type of uh, articles or images or videos they they, they want to see, they want they want to trust who that's coming from. So if you're simply regurgitating um, press releases. Um, from the from the brands, yeah. I mean, you know, especially on especially on the internet and social media, that gets that gets found out pretty pretty fast, and, the, and they move on. So you're talking about trustworthiness and authority, which you know is a major deal right now in media in general. And you know, you have a, a media background in journalism. I have uh, you know a, a legal background two areas that sort of come with a lot of built-in responsibility for what you do. But we both over the years have found that a lot of our colleagues maybe come from marketing backgrounds or just completely not relevant backgrounds. Do you feel like there needs to be more institutional education about the responsibilities of media? Do you think that maybe the problem is it's too easy to get into media and no one's really teaching you the rules of responsibility along the way? Um, I wouldn't wouldn't say that... that that applies in in any particular way to to the watch industry. I mean, with with social media these days, you, everybody's got a, everybody's got a platform, and it can be used for good or it can be it can be used for harm. I mean, I, I don't think we could say that everybody who's got a blog out there is going to have the same training or experience uh, or legal backgrounds as uh, you know as somebody writing for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I just think that there's, you know, there's so much content out there, and I think that users, uh, readers, viewers, whatever, will, will gravitate towards what what works for them. Some, sometimes that sometimes that'll just be crazy off the cuff comments, and sometimes that will be in depth, you know, truly expert articles about watches or the business of watches. So I don't I don't think the watch industry is particularly unique from that standpoint. I, I think you come at the perspective from a, a charming, almost highly optimistic perspective. And I want the world to be that which you describe where consumers are able to understand what they're looking at. But don't you agree that at least sort of a lot of current events have demonstrated that people sometimes don't know what they look at? And if something has a really pretty polish to it, they won't think enough about what's what's the incentive behind who's speaking? Uh, yeah, but I mean, what what can you do about it? I mean, one 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 example would be that you see a lot of retailers get into um, into media, so re- you know, really really big groups like Richemont through um, Netta Porter and Mister Porter, or what is the Switzerland Group or Torno. These are 
you know, these are business, you know, big businesses that want to create content to promote what they're doing. Is there anything wrong with that? No, nothing, nothing in particular. Um, and you'll, you know, we may well come on to talk about this. You're seeing media companies get into get into retail. You're seeing you're seeing that with with Hadinki. So we the, the world will not stay in its silos in the in the way that it would have done 20, 20 years ago. So I think you've just got to operate within the world as it is, not necessarily as you would wish it to be. I think you and I totally agree that the world of media is changing. There's no stopping it. I just think that at the same time, there needs to be a conversation on the consumer side to help people understand a little bit how it's changing. You know, when a company changed from retail to read, uh, media to retail, retail. <laughs> I'm using terms other people make up, media to retail, you know, it's not to put a sign up and says, hey, everyone, we just want you to know we're changing our business model now. Expect to see some changes around here. In fact, quite the opposite is true, where there seems to be uh, as much manipulation as possible that goes on. And I guess I wouldn't bring this up if it wasn't for the fact that so much of the audience comes to me and the other blog to watch team members. I think that's one of the things that may make you, your, your position and mine a little bit different is I spend a lot more time interfacing directly with the consumer, whereas you're probably spending more time interfacing directly with the person at the brand. And we're both getting very different feedback. And a big part of the feedback um, from the, the, the community is I'm having a believability problem when it comes to what brands are telling me online. Mm. Well, I mean, if that, if that turns out to be the, the majority view and they completely turn off from reading or, you know, getting getting their information from social media feeds by the brands or the retailers or stuff that's, you know, very obviously marketing and not uh, not independent content. You know, if if, if that becomes a, a movement, then so so much the better. You know, obviously you and I you and I would love them love people to consume all of their uh, media from from professionals but that's just not the way it is anymore youtube is youtube has millions hundreds of millions billions of users and most of that content is made either by marketing professionals or complete complete amateurs it's a it's a wild it's a wild west out there so um consumers will will vote with their feet uh, and we just have to as media owners media owners we just have to response to that, I think. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of the pandemic where you were doing a lot of interviews with various people in the industry, trying to figure out what they were doing during the pandemic and just chatting about the industry overall. Um, what are some of the things that people talked about back then that ended up coming true? And what are some of the things that people worried about or were hopeful about that never actually came true? I think well, a lot of those very early conversations were about just the sheer shock of what was happening. And I think you have to, to separate those first three or four weeks from what came after that. So, you know, I think all of us as individuals, as, as parents, as business owners, as, as whatever, you know, we genuinely didn't know what we were facing when uh, back, at, back in mid-March or whatever. So we all, we all banged down the hatches and we've all got our personal stories and cert certainly the um, the CEOs or this business leaders that I, that I was speaking to were going through the same thing. You know, the first thing they wanted to do was, was ensure the safety of their people. 
um, the people that they work with within and, and outside of, of their companies, um, and they wanted to protect their uh, their companies. So, you know, I'm sure you did the same thing. We all sat we all sat down, looked at our our PL and our balance sheets, and looked at what uh, extraneous costs we could get rid of without uh, harming our long, the long term prospects of the business. So after that, but after that first. You know, two or three weeks when I think we started to feel that this was going to be uh, a manageable situation, something we would would get through. Then people started to look more long term, uh, and certainly in in the watch business, which is really one of the last industries uh, from a retail perspective to shift dramatically online. Um, that was something that the Swiss watchmakers realised they needed to, to to get on board with. So even uh, three three really big three of the biggest brands, as you know, that that do not sell online: Audemars Piguet, Rolex, and Patek Philippe. Uh, even Patek Philippe started allowing its retailers to to sell online. So um, other business leaders were were not only ramping up e-commerce, and that and, and that applied to retailers as well as, as brands, but they were also looking at how they moved their digital their, their marketing communications on online as well. Then as yeah if we if we then move through towards the second half of the year where we had a you know a reasonable summer, stores reopened, uh, then then they were starting to look at what are what are the lasting Changes and what are the what are the changes that will actually be reversed? And e-commerce, of course, is the is the, is the classic question. So if the right. if the Swiss watch if the luxury Swiss watch industry was selling probably under ten percent of its watches online before the pandemic, then when all the stores were closed, it was shooting up shooting up close to one hundred percent of their watches being sold online in, in in some countries that were in full full lockdown. I mean, and the USA is slightly different because different states took, uh, took different approaches. But broadly, broadly speaking, you could say that California, um, New York were were hard lockdown, and the UK was was similar to that. Uh, and everything had to go online. So, uh, but online wasn't purely you see a watch online, you add to, you click add to basket, you check out, and the watch is delivered. Online meant Anything that wasn't physically through through a store, so I, I talk like on, online facilitated. Like even if you email them and end up on the phone call, it's still seen as an online thing. Exactly, click and collect, curbside delivery. Um, I sort of bunch it together with, in a, a term. It's probably been around forever, but it, but it just seemed to to come up more and more in my conversations, which is clienteling. So, yes. um, auth- authorized dealers have long waiting lists of customers or, or customers with a, uh, with a history of, with a purchase history or a history of attending events that the retailers know a lot about those people, particularly in family businesses that uh, operate in, in their own, in their own territories. So they were just reaching out to them by phone and WhatsApp and email and whatever and, and saying, you, you, know, you know, that, that Rolex Batman that you've always dreamt about. Well, it just so happens I've got one in stock for you. And, uh, Believe me, everybody who got that phone call whipped out their credit card and said, "I have one, thanks." So those, so, so people started to see that that brick and mortar were 
could be replaced. And now, now we're looking at now we're in a situation where all, pretty much every all stores are open all across the world again. And the question now is how do you maintain what was um, positive and useful about clientele in e-commerce while hopefully bringing people back into store and giving them the full luxury experience that um, that they that the brands and and the higher end retailers really really want to deliver. And we start, we start- I, I got a comment here because you're sa- you've t- you've said such an important thing about their strategy. And I think that when you think about this idea of selling online, you have to remember that so much of it is facilitated by, facilitated by media. People are being shown images and stories about watches then forming the desire to buy them. The desire to buy them is not coming from a vacuum. And so if the strategy, the long-term strategy is clienteling, it doesn't create the consumer demand. It's merely there to service the consumer demand. But there still needs to be a large engine to create consumer demand. And I, I think you'll agree that that's a necessary component of the strategy. Please continue. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I remember speaking to Jean-Claude Biver, who's a legend of LVMH watchmaking, uh, retired a year or two, two ago. And we were having this conversation about the importance of brick and mortar stores and um, e-commerce and digital market, marketing and everything else. And he said that the key in luxury watches, which we can all agree nobody needs, nobody, nobody needs a $10,000 timepiece on, on, on their wrist to, to tell the time, is you've got to create irrational desire. And an irrational desire, he, he thinks, has to be created um, through lots of different uh, means. I, I think irrational desire, by the time you get somebody into a truly sumptuous um, West Time store in California or, or a London jeweler store in, in, in Long Island, you know, you walk into those dazzling, dazzling showrooms and you, you start to get irrational and uh, you, you, know, you will part, part with tens of thousands of dollars for. Yeah, you have to, you have to make a dream in the consumer's mind, and then you have the watch be the answer to how to get the dreams. You have to basically illuminate, this could be how you feel, this could be how you look, this could be the activity you're doing, and to achieve that, you can buy and wear this product. Yeah, but nowadays, to get people into stores, uh, you're almost almost certainly, almost 100% of the time, that journey towards the store is going to start online. Um, yes. And, yes. And, and that's where I think, you know, if you, if you want to talk about the media uh, in particular, I think it's so important that people do have trusted sources of information. And, and I think this is the area where, where you and I agree so, so strongly that if you, if you don't have authoritative uh, or media with authority out there, then really all you've got is marketing and advertising and and that's not that's not as effective or i think it becomes less effective if it isn't supported by uh trusted authoritative media so uh, to create that irrational desire you just need so many different things i mean the old mrp game moments thinks you know believes that um uh, an association with with marvel is is part of the mix or having catwalk shows with watches uh, on 
on supermodels is part of the mix. And, and you know, and they're right. There's so many things that are going to go into it. It's like a, it's like a funnel, and every oh, that funnel is trying to do one thing, which is to get people to to is to, to make what is effectively an, an irrational purchase, or to to fall in love with hopefully making many many irrational purchases, since the industry seems to want to sell ten watches to one person rather than one watch to ten people at the moment. So um, there's there's a lot goes into it, and. I think that having independent, authoritative me- media for people to um, to engage with is 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 vital. And if that if that falls away, then the industry will be considerably poorer for that. I'm going to sort of try to fill in some things that I think you're alluding to, but that I should sort of say now. What you're what you're saying is that the watch industry is most familiar or most comfortable with a sort of selling technique, which is selling a watch as a dream as opposed to sort of a nice wearable thing that accentuates you. It's a very specific message that they're selling. That works really well at the high end. However, for the, for the middle income buyer, which has always been very important for any large luxury company to have like good success in sort of the middle class or upper middle class, they need to have a desire engine, which is created by trusted media, the sort of gimmicky fear of missing out. And this is the watch you want to wear in the club and stuff like that. This works for a particular high end segment, but your middle income buyer needs a little bit more of a, of a standard message that talks to them that, that isn't so dependent on sort of what celebrity is wearing what. And this is something which is sort of missing right now. So the watch industry as we know, always did best when they sold a lot of watches to, to you know, to sort of the, mid, the middle class. And of course, there were watches they sold to very high end ones, but that wasn't the bulk of what they do. And that a loss of that is going to is going to force the size of the industry to go so small that so much of it is going to go away. And I and I, and I know we're talking about slightly different things, but I think part of the main point is that a watch industry that's not trying to sell the middle class uh, for, for middle class luxury consumption. Um, that's a problem. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and, uh, and I mentioned it a second ago. I think the I think the watch industry has become too too reliant on selling several watches to a small a small number of people and making sure that smaller you know these sort of mega mega collectors are spending more and more uh, on every watch and getting those average price. Average Be there told me that the average Hublot uh, buyer bought something like seven watches. So I know exactly what we're talking about. They're trying to increase the customer value rather than get more watches to more people. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, so that, those people are very well informed, those, those collectors. But the people that you're referring to, um, you know, if, you, if you imagine that you're coming up to retirement and you want to buy your partner the, you know, the Rolex that they've always dreamt off um, and you don't have any independent media telling you uh, have, putting the information out there that you simply cannot walk into your local Rolex shop and walk out with a submariner it is not going to happen so Rolex isn't going to tell you that uh, you know, the retailer is not going to advertise, advertise that fact, you need to find that out for yourself and it's only by reading you know, a blog to watch or watch pro or Hadinki or these these titles that you're going to find find out that you have no chance whatsoever of buying many many Rolex references, many, you know, virtually uh, every steel sports watch out out there from Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, Rolex, 
on and on and on, you cannot get your hands on those watches. Well, that information isn't going to come from advertising and, and, and PR. It's going to come from journalists doing their job and dig digging for those facts. I want to ask a question, and again, this is just an opinion. Rolex right now has a very strange position on watch media, and that is that they don't really want to work with watch media. It's not that they don't like watch media, but they don't feel that they should be advertising in watch media, which is a total reversal of what they used to do, and they very much well may change their position in the future. What would you recommend to Rolex as a means of changing their current policy when it comes to watch media? How do you think that Rolex should ideally be working with watch media in general? Uh, I think I think it would be foolish to to advise Rolex in anything. They they uh, they, <laughs> they they get they are such. They're, a, they're just some, people too, you know. Well, but they're such a phenomenally successful business to say that anything they're doing is is wrong. I think would be uh, is is not my is not my place. I mean, I, I think that I I don't think Rolex is alone in effectively looking to to move into to spend more of their money in lifestyle and general luxury or sort of tangential spaces. You might say you know, sports sponsorship would be an area. More recently, we're seeing you know, esports and gaming being a thing, movies as AP is doing. Uh, you, can, you can, you know, that's something that the industry has just shifted towards almost, almost en masse, and that's been very tough for specialists, watch media, um, in, in general, over over the last ten years, now, would I say that they that was a mistake and they should shift back and make sure they're supporting specialist watches? Well, it would be nice, but um, I don't know. I, I would I would always stop short of uh, tell, telling people how they should spend their spend their money and uh, focus as much as possible on just doing things that I think are are going to move the needle. Or, or you know, if I if if what I'm doing is going to help Rolex sell more watches, then I suspect Rolex will, will support it. If I See, there's, that, there's that British politeness I keep hearing about. And that's <laughs> you're, you're being very polite. It's true. Look, I'm a little bit more brazen, and I've been accused of being too outspoken. So I think that you know somewhere between our positions is, is maybe the right way of communicating to them. But I will okay, say but, this. But anyway, we, don't, we don't entirely agree on this, as you know. So. <laughs> well, no, I, I, you're, you're right. You're right. But I'll just tell you this. You know, I do speak to people within brands and I learn about how there are differences of, of opinions. And internally at Rolex, there there is disagreements here and there about big things. So it is true and it would be nice uh, if Rolex could be sort of this, this all good doing machine. Rolex has done some amazing things and the structure that Rolex is is fantastic and I admire them so very, very much. But they are not they are not a god and they are prone to things that they might refine in the future. You know, they've not done everything right all the time. So I think that there's an internal conversation there with different factions that believe different things. And I know because I've spoken to them. Um, and so I, I, you know, I feel very strongly about a watch industry that continues to appeal and that continues to speak to consumers like me. And I think sort of, you know, we all inherently know ourselves as consumers. You know yourself and other people like you. I know that the watch industry sometimes is dangerously close to abandoning people like me in the future, never reaching other consumers like me, never making it so that people, I mean, I became a watch lover by, by accident. So I sort of have this, this larger goal to make sure that more consumers like me 
with my mentality and where I grew up in the world have a chance of becoming a watch consumer. And I think that what really galvanizes a lot of my behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that does make sense. And I think, you know, I, I would, we are the same. We both, we both love watches. And, um, and ne neither of us are gazillionaires yet that, you know, that, that are going to be able to, um, you know, get access to every single great, great timepiece that we would like to get, to, to get our hands on. So we are, uh, I, I guess we're typical in, in that sense that we are middle income watch lovers. And we should be the backbone of the market. We should be the absolute backbone of the market. That we can't buy a Rolex normally right now means that Rolex is missing an entire generation of fans, in my opinion. True. But what are they going to do? They're going to increase production from a million watches a year to, to five million watches a year so that we can all we can all get one at normal retail price? Maybe they will in, in, in 20 years' time, but I, I kind of doubt it. Um, yeah, I not. think that they're. I think they're looking the other way in a lot of areas. I think that they could clamp down if they really wanted to. I think that there's again a difference of opinion internally. Um, I think a lot of people internally at Rolex don't really like the status quo. I mean, we know these watches aren't going to people to wear. A lot of them are going and being moved as currency. And actually, and this is nothing against Rolex at all, but in the criminal world right now, luxury watches, including a lot of Rolexes, are being traded as a currency a way of not tracking it because they are valuable, but they trade it amongst one another. And watches as cr currency between uh, criminals right now around the world is like a super popular thing. And again, the brands freely sell products into these spaces without really controlling it. So there, there are things they can do. They don't want to hurt their bottom line. I get it. But I think it's, it's unfair to say that there's literally like their hands are tied behind their back. Yeah, no, I guess that's right. And the, the other people who are incredibly frustrated with the situation is their, is their authorized dealers. You know, oh, yeah. they, they, these are people who, who commit, uh, invest huge, huge sums of money to upgrade their stores to, to the standard that Rolex wants. Rolex is very demanding in terms of the amount of space that they get. Uh, Incredibly demanding. People yeah. need to understand that it's a very odd relationship between a retail and Rolex. In a way, it's great, but in a way, it's very stifling because you get to make no decisions. You basically set up a Rolex selling point and in your city and your in your facility. You run it. You make a percentage, but there's very few decisions you're allowed to make in terms of how it's run and how it looks. Yeah, I mean, I, I was with a with a Rolex AD just just last week, who's who's invested seven figures in uh, a completely new store design. They they already they already stocked Rolex, but they were just going for a full blown upgrade of their entire store. They only stock Rolex Tudor and Longines watches plus plus jewelry on the side, and they've got this beautiful Art Deco. Uh, frontage onto the street which they which needed improving because it was actually not secure enough and oh, and they had to uh, they, they want rolex in in the right hand side of the window and jewelry to, to the left is with a door the door down the center but rolex says that that window has to be three meters wide and it has to, <laughs> and, and it has, to and it has to have square edges whereas the previous one had rounded edges. So they had to take out the entire storefront. Um, they came up with a compromise because, the, the, because of the way the store was designed. So there was a two-meter Rolex window, then with a 
set back near the door, there was another meter wide Rolex windows so that if you were looking straight on, it looked like it was three meters wide and that just about passed, passed the Rolex test. Uh, you know, that, that's the level to which when Rolex says jump, their authorized dealers just ask how high. Yeah, like when you're a Rolex retailer, I heard that when you get a, like a letter in the mail from Rolex, like you have the same feeling as when you get a, a letter from like a tax collecting authority, like the IRS here in the U.S. You're like, this is like this could either be bland information or bad news. It's not nothing good is going to come of this. Yeah, exactly. And, and let's not, you know, you're, this this same store manager, and I can tell you this story dozens and dozens of times over with all the people that, that I that I've met. They're putting all of this this investment in, only to then have completely empty cabinets because they can't they can't get any stock. So it's a it is a bizarre situation at the moment, and yet there's not a Rolex authorized dealer on the planet that I've ever met who who would give up the brand. It's just tra- transformational for them. So they just have to they just have to suck it up. But I but I think this stuff really does need reporting. Um, Rolex, uh, as you and I, will never give you give anybody an interview on on the record, um, so nobody ever gets any answers out of out of them. So we have to do what we can to use our reporting skills to get build up the story and tell tell the story another way. Now, again, going back to sort of the original question, maybe I'll change it. Not what Rolex could change as a strategy, but what would be an ideal relationship between media and Rolex? Like, should media be invited in? Should they have press conferences? Should they just be said, oh, they're a private company, they can do whatever they want? You know, like, what's good for Rolex? As a media professional, I think maybe that's a better place to, that you can offer advice. Well, yeah, I've got, I've got some self-interest here, obviously. I, sure, the, the it's more, okay. The more, accept, the more accessible CEOs and executives are, uh, to me, the more, the more interesting stories I get, the more interesting stories I get, the more readers I get, and the more readers I get, the more I can charge for, adver- for advertising. I'm just, you know, that's, that's, le- that's laying it out as plainly play- as, I, as I can. So, Rolex being, um, you know, never giving interviews. And I, you know, you, you could literally uh, Google the, C- the CEO's name. And the last interview he gave was gave was when he was working for Zenith before he before he joined Rolex. So, so they, they, it becomes uh, a question of is this man still alive? Like <laughs> no one has talked about his replacement, but no one's seen or heard of him. Does he live underground now? It's it's unclear. Yeah. Well, I, as I said earlier, you never never dictate to never dictate to anybody what they should or shouldn't be doing. And this, I'm not just talking about Rolex, I'm talking about you know, the entire watch industry or any, any industry for that matter. But, you know, but you, you uh, have to admit, our cultural difference might account for that. I mean, again, I'm not trying to like boil, you know, be reductionist about it, but in England, you sort of have this monarchical authority that gets to say <laughs> things. In America, it's be your own boss. You know, maybe I just grew up with more audacity to tell other people how to do things. Well, I, I, one, one thing I would say about the, the Swiss is that I don't, yeah, the secrecy is incredibly frustrating. Maybe it's, maybe it's part of the mystique and storytelling and, and you know, and, and, but, they're, just hi- they're just hiding things. That's or it. They might be hiding things. But, but, but there's, there's, there's something that might be more uh, interesting to discuss is just how thin-skinned they are. They really, oh. they really do not react well to anything uh, 
negative being being said about their business, their brand, their watches, their strategy, their their anything. They are incredibly thin skinned and very very punchy at, uh, at let it, letting you know that uh, they are they are not happy. Yeah, and and it takes a while because at first they're kind of polite, but once the sort of like the doors open where they feel like they know you enough. You're like, whoa, where did this come from? You got real pissed off really fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's weird. I mean, I I used to report on the uh, information technology industry. So, right. I, so back in the mid, early to mid 1990s, in fact, most of the 1990s, I, I was reporting on the rise of businesses like Microsoft and Oracle and IBM. You know, all, all of these huge tech, tech companies that, you, that are surrounding you there in, there in California. And of course, they wanted to control the message and you know, they did plenty of PR and marketing and they'd, they'd invite you on lavish press trips to try and influence how, how you wrote about them. But they were, they were not thin-skinned in the way that the Swiss watch industry is. You know, if, you, if you just, you could write something you know, offensive about about Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or Andy Grove at Intel, and you you wouldn't really hear anything back. It was, you know, let alone criticizing their products or their strategy or anything else. They kind of just took it as part of the part of the process, part part of a, a fast growing successful industry. Um, the Swiss come from hundreds and hundreds of years of never having to say or go public with with anything and, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know seemingly they 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 will never change it's you know it, it's quite it's quite remarkable in all the industries that i've reported on from a business perspective i have never known any to be as secretive and as precious as the, as the swiss watchmakers this this is how i try to explain it sometimes to people where the tech industry basically just tried to bribe people. They just try to make it like really difficult for journalists to want to be in a position to say something negative. They like, they just entertain them. They advertised. They, they just sort of did the sort of American style of doing it. Whereas the Swiss are a little bit more mafia like they're <laughs> like, you know, they, there's like weird threats and undertones and you're like, what do they mean by that? You know, and then, uh, you know, sp- trying to pull strings in the background. I told so-and-so not to work with you anymore. Like, that's a weird type of stuff they do. They don't know how to have an open, honest conversation where they can say, like, well, my position is this, and I know you're trying to do this. It's like, that's the last resort. Like, they're even though they have the reputation for being the country of diplomacy, they will go into real open mediation diplomacy as a last resort. They will always try to strong arm you at first. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's the, it's the headquarters of the United Nations that's... Uh, you know, you, you think it would be open and altruistic, but it's also that. irony, it's, my friend. Irony. It's also that. It's also the home of the Swiss banking industry. So, uh, yeah, t- take it. Yeah. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. 
made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Okay, so let let's go back to some of these conversations you had with people because you had an awful lot of them, and you're you know you're a good interviewer. Talk about some of the interesting things people said. You know, maybe some of the surprising things. A lot of the people that listen to Superlative aren't you know watch consumers or hobbyists like in the way the people that, that follow blog to watch every day are. It's a little bit more generalized, even though of course it gets you know a lot of the watch lovers as well. I want them to sort of understand some of the personalities, things that people can, you know, are, are concerned. I mean, people can't travel. That was such an essential part of this industry. Like, what were these people's plan when they couldn't travel? Yeah, I mean, everybody had to to get used to to Zoom Zoom meetings and all that sort of thing. I mean, it, in terms of the interviews I do, and this is this is applied throughout the thirty years of of uh, journalism. It's all about human human stories for, for me, um, and in in many ways, it doesn't matter if you're the chief executive of a multi billion dollar industry or a small corner store or whatever. People face many many of the same issues: you know, the the fear for their business and their families in in those super super early days, and then. Um, uh, and then looking at more strategically, how are they going to build on a on a solid business and make it make it great again as, as the panic as the pandemic um, unfolded? So uh, just just very human stories, and I think that there were some CEOs who were really good at that. Um, I would say people like uh, Julian Tonnerre at Zenith, George Kurt at Breitling. Uh, spring to mind, you know, they they really quickly came to got to grips with digital digital communication and were you know were all over social media and blogs. And yeah, they, they didn't seem to like you know uh, miss a beat. I mean, they of course had to pivot, but you're 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 absolutely correct. Both Mr. Kern and, and Julian from from Zenith, they immediately sort of realigned their strategies and, and kept moving forward. I, I I have to agree with you. Very admirable. Yeah, I mean, certain, certain topics just kept on coming up at time and time again. If you if you remember, it was it was at a time when uh, a lot of the conversations were around Baselworld and, uh, and watches and wonders in Geneva. You know, these, these mega trade trade fairs that have been the you know the biggest marketing spend for for the big brands and groups for for decades, and suddenly they suddenly they had vanished. That they had products to launch. They had products to launch that had been five years in development, and they had nowhere to uh, to, to show them. Would would they go ahead with those launches? Would they not go ahead with those launches? Um, would they do it digitally, or would they hold it hold it back and and do local events in in city in cities around the world? So that was pretty fascinating. I mean, as we're talking, I'm I'm remembering that of course. You know, Rolex and Padek didn't launch anything in the spring of, of 2020. They, did, they only started bringing out watches 
after the after the summer in September, October, and even even then it was almost a surprise. We weren't expecting to see any new watches for them for the whole of whole of 2020. So that was a a, a massive uh, conundrum for the brands: what, what to do about what to do about the newness that would normally be all shown in the first quarter in in Switzerland. All of a sudden, those platforms have disappeared, and they had to find something else to do. And you know, taking the, our conversation full circle, that, that's where um, you know digital players like us were suddenly much more important. And, and uh, we saw our traffic almost double overnight and treble within within weeks. And I'm sure you saw something similar it's because pe- people wanted to see what was going on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the internet was where a lot of watch consumerism and, and community was happening already, and we only saw that accelerate. So it was actually, in a lot of ways, a very good um, test case for the watch industry when it comes to the health of e-commerce and consumers online. Um, these are hobbyists, of course, so the mainstream is going to be a little bit more challenging to reach online because they're not searching for watch information. But I think that there's a very, very good foundation there. Now, I want to go back to some of the things that you wrote. You had columns. Uh, I was doing a lot of that, a lot of editorial, a lot of rants, as I call them. And I say that in a, in a loving way. You and I would rant about things we have, pa- we have a passion about. Um, but in some senses, I, I couldn't always know, understand where, where your feelings were. You seem to pivot a little bit when it comes to things like these big third-party shows. You, on the one hand, I think that you are a great advocate for the in-person experience in doing shows, but something about Basel World and maybe SIHH and things like that, the way that they were run seemed to rub you the wrong way and you wanted some reforms. Talk about that. Well, that, that predated the pandemic. Uh, the, yeah, I, I can see what you mean by, by my position wasn't always entirely clear because I, I was a, a fan of Basel World. And I remain a fan of the Swiss watch industry putting on a really big show. It comes back to that uh, irrational desire uh, issue. If you, right. you know, if some, sometimes you you know you've got to put on a show that's just, that looks like the Las Vegas Strip in order to get people's attention, and to do that once a year, uh, whether that's in Basel or Geneva or, or both. I think is I think is a is a positive thing to do. The second thing I like about it, in fact, the thing I like about it above the first point is it brings the entire industry together. And the conversations that I had outside of the the, the formal meetings on people's stands that are you know in the bars, in the restaurants, socially between retailers all over all over the world who are brought together by the big brands. You know, that that is a, a once a year opportunity that everybody appreciates. That, you know, the retailers appreciate, the brands appreciate, the press appreciates it. So, bringing everybody together, I think, it is a is a very good thing. the The issue I had was specific to Basel World, actually, and almost more specific to the city of Basel, because the you know they they just they just gouged people coming into that city for years and years and years. You know, you, you, I know this extremely well, and everybody bitches and moans about it, which is, you know, the, the price per, per mile of getting a taxi from the airport has doubled. There are res- restaurants who simply put, you know, scrib- scribble out the normal price and, and treble, treble the price of a, of a hot dog. 
for the for the weaker bars. They would they would un without any inhibition totally exploit the convention goers somehow under the belief that convention goers were were extremely wealthy and would put up with a lot. The city of Basel extended essentially a tax on the on the people who attended the show that benefited their city and we've never really understood it because we're, we it's never been about being rowdy it helped the, it helped the industry but you know rent rental of places parking like you said public transportation food is of course a given but everything goes for, like, like insane and it's like this isn't con film festival no exactly you know a, a room that should cost a hundred dollars suddenly cost was costing seven hundred dollars but it was but it was also the show um, it, it, even though I love walking into Hall One and seeing the size and scale of those huge, huge stands, it became so expensive for the brands um, that they just weren't getting any sort of return. So, you know, in an, in an era where even even if you're Rolex, you could choose to talk to your retailers and, and give them their allocations and show them their new watches digitally, as we've discovered during the pandemic, uh, and yet they were having to invest tens of millions of dollars for a week-long uh, for a week-long show. When, when Swatch Group pulled out in 20, after 2018, they were, uh, I think uh, Nicholas Hayek said that they were spending $50 million on a, on a week-long show. Well, that $50 million can be spent in a lot of, diff- in a lot of different ways. So I think that they... You know, they, they rang the neck of the goose that was that was laying gold golden eggs. Both both the organisers of Basel World, the city of Basel World, uh, and uh, and they, they then uh, made it even worse for themselves by really mishandling the way that where they, when they had to postpone or cancel the show because, <laughs> because of the pan, pandemic, oh, they, they, wow. they they really mishandled that by not returning oh, to oh, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So. That left a horrendously bad taste in, in everybody's mouth, and you know, whether whether they say on the record or off, off the record, everybody was thoroughly pissed. Okay, so the brands are not spending, as you said, fifty million dollars or at least several million dollars on these shows. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem as though they've taken the same amount of money and put it elsewhere. I see brands tightening the belt, expecting more, increasing prices of their watches. I see this as a common behavior. I don't know what it's leading to because they seem to expect more out of the market while giving the market less money for marketing and investment and things like that. I worry about a large part of the industry being run by accountants right now. Uh, are, you, are you talking about that long term or are you talk, talk, uh, as a long term trend over, let's say, a decade, decade or more or in the last year to 18 months? Because in, in the last year to, year to 18 months, I can absolutely understand that if you had, if you were spending fifty million dollars on a trade show that got cancelled, you're not necessarily going to move that fifty million dollars into other forms of marketing in the face of a pandemic. You're going to look at your balance sheet and your PL and say, "We've got to make some savings here." So the fact that that didn't feed through immediately and get spent in other ways is, is no surprise to me, and I think probably the right the right decision by the industry. And we we actually saw it in a from a if you look for patterns, we saw pretty much all marketing and advertising vanish in the first half of of, uh, of 2020. Then it all came back. It, it, a lot of it came back in the second half of the year because the peak 
peak time for selling watches is in the is in the holiday season. Um, then it all got shut down again in the first half uh, of this year because you know new variants were coming along. There were second waves, third waves, whatever in, di- in different countries. So they all sat on their hands again. It, I mean that's be happening time immemorial. If there's a uh, if there's a downturn in the economy, a recession, or whatever else. There's two things guaranteed to be cut. One is one is advertising, and the other is training. So that that's always gone. But if you're talking about a more long-term trend, I don't think I don't think the amount of money that's being spent on advertising and marketing has necessarily decreased. I think it's just moved moved around. And um, yeah, I think there's there's certainly less money going towards specialist watch titles and there's more money going into social media and and partnerships and um, sponsorships and that sort of thing. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I see and I think you see some of this as well and I think that's going to be a short-term trend because ultimately it doesn't work but it's still something which is happening right now. This is what I see. I see brands looking at tools online like Instagram and Facebook and email marketing and Believing this idea that they can replicate the relationship that media has with consumers themselves. They believe that they can create media, find consumers, and develop long-term relationships with them by themselves and own that relationship. I think that's a trend right now. And there are some companies in certain verticals that do it well. I do not believe that that is a sustainable model for the watch industry. That means every single watch brand has to independently go out, find consumers, create marketing materials, reach out to them, do it on a consistent basis, and also make watches. It's much easier for them to fund a few key watch media titles that will do that for them. So I think this sort of trend of completely owning your own marketing channels is ultimately futile, but it's trendy and attractive because it's sort of this thing that all the business publications and blah, blah, blah talk about right now. So that's sort of what I see right now. I see the ultimate long-term sustainability of independent media, but that's sort of going through an unpopular period right now and has yet to re-emerge as a favorite platform for marketing. Well, there's there's a definite trend at the moment, and I would, I would agree that this this may run out of steam, it may go go into reverse, which is all, all of the brands want to go direct to the consumer, and they do that, and, and you're seeing that across multiple uh, business areas. So you're seeing that with retail, um is probably the poster boy for this strategy. They want to sell direct, they want to have their own stores, um, and they want to own that own that customer relationship. You see it, you see it in marketing as you just described. You know, you bring you have a you, you bring it in-house, you create a whole load of content that you can pump out on Instagram and you know. And the, and the data that comes back from the people who are engaging with that content, you own, you own as well, so you're getting closer to your consumer that way. Media, they're, they're generating their own media, uh, publications, blogs, press, you name it. And it's all ultimately about owning that customer relationship and getting as much data as they can and, use, uh, and using it to their advantage. And also taking out middlemen, that, that theory that if I'm selling a watch through an authorized dealer, and I've got to give 50% of the margin on that watch to the dealer. A distributor might take another 25%. The, the, you know, you're left as a brand with 25% of the uh, of the value of each, of each watch sale. So, 
take, take, taking out middlemen across retail, marketing, media, data, data, big data projects, that sort of thing. Yeah, they're, they're gonna, they're definitely doing that, and we'll find out how how good they are. With it. I would say it, it, you know, the area where I have um, some expertise, which would be media and retail, by virtue of the fact that I speak speak to a hell of a lot of retailers as part of my as part of my job. The the value the value that is added, the expertise, is not easily. Uh, replicated within brands, and I think they will quickly discover that. And even if they discover it's too tough, even, even before they discover how tough it is, I think they will start to lose interest in it. And they they should really focus on what they are best at, which is man, you know, designing and manufacturing watches. And the more they the more they stick to that, I think the more successful they will they will be in the future. Uh, and you only have to look at Rolex, which outsells the, you know, the other top three brands in the industry uh, combined to you know, to see that that's to see that's working. I I heartily echo that sentiment. I heartily echo that sentiment. I'll say it again: these watch brands should stick to what they do best, which is you know design and manufacture and uh, excellent watches. Um, now, here's the interesting question: there there is this there's this vacuum right now, and the vacuum is is this. Whose responsibility is it to spend money on marketing? Because historically, the retailers put up a lot. And I think it's a very interesting question to say, what should the split be? Because right now, the retailers really don't want to spend anything on marketing. They're afraid of you know, giving business to the competition and all kinds of things. I don't really agree with them. But retailers right now, uh, even ones that you, you, know, you really love, like Watchers of Switzerland, in a lot of places are not really advertising. Um, even though they are spending a lot of money. So when it comes to spending money to promote watches, who should ultimately be responsible? What should that split be between the people selling the watches, retailers, distributors, brands, consumers, media? You know, wh- What do you think is sort of a healthy mix there? Because I think there's sort of this responsibility that just wants that the brands and retailers really are trying to sort of push back on one another right now. Uh, I, I don't know what the healthy mix would be. In, in, you know, if I was going to draw a pie chart and say that it should be a third here and a third here and whatever, but I certainly think there should be a mix. So if you if you look at um, we can we can name any brand. It's easiest just to use Rolex for the for the shorthand. You know, Rolex is going to buy let's, let's say Formula One motor racing sponsorship. Um, the Grand Slam tennis, the majors of the golf, uh, the Oscars, these, these sorts of decisions are going to be made, made in Switzerland because they are global brand building exercises. Uh, what they're also doing is marketing by virtue of the real estate that their authorized dealers put in place. So the, you know, the conversation we had a second ago about Rolex wanting a three-meter window. Well, that three-meter window is a is an advert for Rolex in the prime position of, of the high street, um, paid for by by its exactly. by, by, exactly. its, by its retailers. Now, Rolex does supply uh, co-op funding. Co-op funding basically means advertising money to their to their partners, and that can be spent any way they like. So, if you're uh, you know, if, if you're an authorized dealer in Cincinnati, you you might spend co-op money from the brands on a, a, lo- a local event 
a local VIP event, uh, you know, champagne and uh, and whatever, to to promote your store, and that that gets around the issue of leakage, i.e., your advertising uh, on behalf of somebody else in in a neighboring in a neighboring city or whatever. Um, so. It makes sense. It makes sense what you're saying. It does make sense. Or they might be advertising in their local paper or they might be spending money on their own social media and the brands are also helping them to improve their digital marketing by providing great assets that, uh, that they can put on their own feeds. So it should, it, it should always remain a mix. And I, and I think it does. It, it is still a mix. Um, and I think that the, what media has to do is find a way to... It, to, to tap into that at, at, a, at every level. So, you know, can, can you can you persuade the executives in Geneva that you can help them in a in a worldwide branding sense, and or can you help the retailers on you know, on the ground locally? I'm going to point out something that I think is important. When you have to spend your own money on marketing, you tend to spend very very little. Meaning, if the money could go into the into profits as opposed to being spent, you you tend to not spend it. If you are a marketing professional and you're given a budget, and this is like company money and it's supposed to be spent on marketing, your job is to spend it. And so in one scenario, your job is to spend as little as possible. And the other scenario, your job is to spend as much as possible. The industry needs to make sure that it's set up in a sense where there's it's more like the marketing professional that has to spend it versus the entrepreneur that says, well, if I don't spend it, I get to keep it. And the way to do that, in my opinion, is have a different person put up the money than the person who is making the decision. So, for example, in this scenario, the brand could put up the money and the retailer could have authority on how it's spent. A model like that, you know, again, with certain you know, precautions, can probably make it that the money actually gets spent on things that probably work. Because you don't have that sort of like, like I said, the entrepreneur syndrome where you feel like you could pocket everything you don't spend. But that, that does go on. Um, I mean that that's that's how cold funding is supposed to work. You don't you don't get this money from the brand just to boost your bottom line without doing doing anything with it. Um, how how well it's how well it's policed is uh, is is open to debate. But if you're if you're working with a brand that you desperately want to keep happy, and they have a they have a set of regulations that say you know, if you're given ten thousand dollars to spend to spend on PR and advertising or events for your, for your retailers, well, they do expect you to spend that ten thousand dollars. And if if you simply tr- trouser the money and get found out that you're not doing the the uh, the promotional work that you you've been paid to do, then you know you run the risk of losing losing that brand. So there's a little bit of self self self-policing that goes goes on in that sense and the, the stronger the brand and the more fearful a retailer would be of losing that brand the the, the less active the policing needs to be because the fear is up the fear factor is is higher but I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add one other thing which is that the the agencies who are who you know who secure big budgets to uh, do do promotional work there, there, there is an issue there, which is there's there's money that comes in in one in one end from 
from the brands and that money. Down is, with is, all it, advertising agencies. I'm just uh, going to say uh, that right now. Down not, with all advertising agencies. I'm not, not, not going to go that far, <laughs> that far with you. But there's, there's, there's ways in which the, the agencies can spend money. If you imagine $100,000 comes in one end and then they go and spend $100,000 on advertising at the other end, well, effectively, there's a lot they've lost money because they, they've got their own overhead costs. So they've shifted money from one to the other. So their job really is to make as much of that $100,000 stick within their four walls and not go out the other end in terms of advertising and marketing. You do, and PR companies and ad agencies and media planners have any any number of tricks so that the $100,000 that goes in one end trickles out as about $10,000 at the other. Okay, you know, we'll talk about we'll talk about that another time more. It's it's sort of a pedantic topic. It's interesting, but it's but it, it's like a nerd thing. You'd have to want to talk about you know the role of advertising agencies and and, and luxury marketing. Um, final question: Real world events, something that again you are passionate about, and you are planning uh, still, to my understanding, uh, the in per- watch pro in person events in England. What are you going to do different? You know, there's there's been shows before. There's been some you've gone to, some you haven't. What do you want your show to do different? How do you want to stand out? What sort of material improvements or enhancements do you want to make on some of those other watch shows you've been to that haven't been as great as what you're going to do? I think I think that just comes down to uh, quality of execution. I'm not I'm not about to to reinvent the wheel here. But what we what, what we have done is we've segmented the market somewhat. So uh, we we have two. Uh, the two brand, two two event brands. We have Watch Pro Market and we have Watch Pro Salon. Watch Pro Watch Pro Market, as as the name suggests, is uh, more mass market. It's positioned um, within uh, the, the sort of very high footfall market area in the east end of London called uh, Shoreditch. It's, it's got uh, a big fashion market near it. It's got a big street food market. It's very edgy. It's it's absolutely packed every every uh, every weekend, and we intend to get a lot of digital native brands that don't get the opportunity to get in front of uh, of customers and actually have their watches tried on. Other than you know, you buy them, they get to your home, you try them on, and then you send them back, and you don't like them. So they really love the idea of having a simple way to to get out there, talk to as many customers as possible like over. Over a weekend, so we're we're running that in, in as a summer edition in August. We're running it in December uh, as a as a Christmas edition. Uh, Watch Pro Salon in November is in a an uber luxury five star hotel that's opening in Leicester Square in the centre of London this this summer called, called the Londoner, and that will be a much higher higher end show for uh, luxury Swiss brands. So we have you know, the likes of uh, Caribou Salainen, Parmigiani, um, Richemont brands, Swatch Group brands. Uh, those would be the target there. Um, and really, yeah, I mean, as I say, these are, these are shows that go on around the world. I, I personally think we talked about Basel World and uh, Watches and Wonders earlier. While, while I think there is a place for one, mega show in, in Switzerland, I think that should be a much more cost-effective show for the brands so that they can spend their money 
on far more local events around the world to, to reach domestic customers rather than just trade and press coming, coming to Switzerland. So I, I think if they could, let's say we talked about $50 million being spent by Swatch Group in, uh, in Basel World before. Well, let's say they spent $20 million on a big uh, show in Switzerland, but they spent $30 million putting on a show in, in, uh, in San Francisco, in New York, in London, in, in Dubai, in Hong Kong, um, I, to, to get closer and closer to, to domestic customers. I mean, that, that just seems to me to fit with their strategy. I think it would be really, really appreciated by cons consumers who don't get the opportunity to go to these shows and see brand new watches um, just as they're being launched. So I think that's a, a, that's a hybrid model that I think should be adopted by, by the industry going forward. I think that's um, a great point. It is Watch Pro Market and Watch Pro Salon. Uh, many of those coming soon. I look forward to going myself, Rob. So please make sure that I'm on that guest list because I, I can't wait to go to a well-done event. And I agree with you. It's all about execution because we've been to ones that are great ideas, not executed fantastically. Um, my guest has been Rob Corder, the uh, co-founder and the editor of Watch Pro. Rob, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. I look forward to seeing you in another Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?